It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. More information at 7thAvenueProject.com. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Robert Polly. Today, man meets bug. We're going to talk to the anthropologist Hugh Raffles, who spent a good deal of time in recent years studying and thinking about the relationship between us humans and the zillions of insects we share this planet with. Hugh has traveled far and wide, observing some of the myriad and surprising ways that people and insects shape each other's lives, and he's collected his reports and ruminations in a new book, Insectopedia. It raises some profound questions about the way we engage the natural world and what happens when species collide. We'll contemplate some of those questions today, and we'll also hear some fascinating stories of human-insect interactions from around the world. We'll learn about the beetle boom in Japan, the fighting crickets of Shanghai, insect nightmares, insect crushes, insect mines, insect music, and more. Stay with us. Where did you grow up? I grew up in London. We moved. I was born in Manchester, but we moved to London when I was four or five. So what was insect life for you as a child? I think it was ladybugs. <laughs> um, you know, the obvious things, ladybugs and wasps, probably. Mm. I remember wasps most vividly because in, in summer we would put out um, jam jars with water in them. And, and I hated it. I really hated it because the wasps would find their way into it and they would drown. And that was the way of, you know, stopping wasps coming and stinging you because, because everyone in the family was, was scared of getting stung by wasps and there were a lot of wasps at that time. The other insect that I remember was stag beetles. Used to find stag beetles. We'd go out for walks and find stag beetles. And, and again, they were, they were really terrifying. So I didn't really have very many, very many positive interactions with insects that I remember. But you had a soft heart, which is interesting. I mean, some kids, I'm sure I'm not the only one who was sort of hard-hearted toward insects. I mean, yeah. I saw them as an alien and often dangerous or at least pestiferous force in my life. I, I don't yeah. think I was as, as uh, sensitive as you were, you know, watching those wasps drown and feeling for them. Oh, or maybe I'm not as sensitive as it wasn't as sensitive as I, well, like I was. Just think thinking I was. The, the guy who could write this book um, was prefigured by the kid who could worry about those, those wasps drowning, it seems yeah. to me. Maybe, maybe that's true, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and that stayed with me. I still worry a lot about these little insects <laughs> when they get in my house, and I think they don't really want to be there, and how can I get them out, and I don't really want them to be there either. And you live in New York. Where I live in New York, and so... Cockroaches are a... Cockroaches are definitely an issue and actually in in our apartment um it's water bugs rather than cockroaches you know big big ones and and i I, you know like many people i have an instant um revulsion to them which Mm. i've really tried to train myself out of by Mm -hmm. by really looking at them more carefully and trying to find things in them that are you know if not appealing at least at least very interesting um insectopedia is the title but this is not an opedia no. <laughs> I should say right away. <laughs> Not in the conventional sense, no. You have chapters on various subjects, all kinds of subjects, and they have alphabetical um, titles, so it's arranged in alphabetical order, but they're whimsical. I mean, this is a book, I think, of a very idiosyncratic and whimsical book. Mm-hmm. Whatever caught your attention in the insect world or whatever was prompted by thoughts about insects, it seems yeah. to me, ended up in here. Pretty much, yeah, and pretty much, actually, pretty much everything I know about insects is in that book as well. <laughs> so, um, but 
I think of it as being as good an insect encyclopedia as any other insect. Well, you're going to have to defend that statement because just for, <laughs> for, for listeners who haven't picked up your book yet, it's really, uh, I would have called it an essay collection. Now, yeah. is that okay with you? Sure. An essay collection. And some of the essays are, are rather deep investigations into a particular insect-related subject. Uh, and others are, are short meditations or, or lyrical passages, provocations to further thought. I mean, it really is a, um, it's a collection. It's a collection. It reminds me of insect collecting, actually, the way you put uh, yeah, it together. That, that would work. Yeah. Uh, but, um, but you say it's as good as any other insect encyclopedia. <laughs> well, only in the sense that I, <laughs> yeah, I didn't really, I guess, like, I didn't really mean that as to be quite as arrogant as it sounded because there's some great insect encyclopedias, with, other which are actually written by people who know something, or at least a lot more about insects than I do. But um, I guess what I mean is that the idea that you can sum up all knowledge about a topic, actually any topic, but say, let's say something, particularly something as vast as the insect world, in a book, in an encyclopedia itself, just seems like not just utopian, but somehow, I mean, delusional. So in that sense, you know, what, I, what I'm trying to, I suppose what I'm trying to indicate, both by calling it encyclopedia and by having these very arbitrary titles, is just the impossibility of that as a, as a pursuit. And the, I, this sort of imperial idea of knowledge that we have, that we can sum up, you know, sum up the whole of the, whole of the planet um, within the covers of book. Actually, even that we could, in any way, whether it's in a book or anything, that we might even be able to control the world to the extent that we could, we could sum it up, um, you know, there's a vanity. There's a vanity in that that I'm sort of making fun of by calling it Insectopedia, making it so obvious that this doesn't have that that goal. This book almost seems like a conversation with encyclopedists. You know, back in the 18th century or so, when the encyclopedia movement started, right? Yeah, yeah. Who thought that the world could be encompassed and that it was their job to do that? Yes. And this book is sort of a retort to that idea. It, it is, but it's also, I mean, that idea is still with us very strongly, and particularly with the ways that we think about and organize nature. I mean, even the idea of biodiversity, the, the idea that we can, we, you know, that, that everything that's out there just has to slot into it. We, we already have the, the slots available to it. So you find a new species, and there's a slot waiting for it, and you just, you just fit it in. Um, and it's a system which is organized in such a way that it, it allows us to act on nature and manage nature. Well, that's that's how I think of it anyway. Um, so just the idea of biodiversity, it's really a I sort of think of it as almost something like a management strategy. You speak of knowledge as a way of mastering the natural world. Mm -hmm. And insects, of course, are one of those things that humans would most like to master. <laughs> I mean, they are, I think, I think it's fair to say for, for many human beings, insects are mostly an annoyance. I mean, they may not realize that the vegetables they buy are from plants that had to be pollinated by mm -hmm. bees. I mean, they may not necessarily recognize how essential insects are, but I think on a day-to-day -day level, bug is not a happy term for most people. Bug certainly isn't. <laughs> bug isn't. <laughs> and bug includes insects and, and like invertebrates. Probably doesn't include butterflies, though. Yeah, right. Exactly. Mm. There are some really nice insects. Well, the category itself is, so, is such a hodgepodge, right? It's such an impossible category because it includes everything from that are completely repulsive to us in, well, you know, I shouldn't say us as if that includes everybody, but to most people, at least in the U.S. And well, in, well, are you creeped out by any insects at this point? After yeah, I still have a bit of a problem with water bugs, yeah. Water bugs. These yeah. are the ones you find in your apartment. Yeah, I'm, I'm so, but, but you know, this is, this is entirely due to the environment in which I find them in. The first fieldwork that I did was in the Amazon. People live in much more, much more sort of open, open plan houses. You know, um, sometimes the, the entire house is open. These are wooden houses. And the animals that people worry about there are ones that are going to do them some harm. 
Hmm. So we really don't like mosquitoes at certain times of the year when there's really clouds and mm. clouds of them. And um, don't like snakes. Mm-hmm. Um, and don't like biting spiders. But cockroaches will just scuttle around and nobody worries about them at all. Uh-huh. And actually they also didn't bother me hmm. in those in that situation. There's plenty of other stuff to worry about. <laughs> but, but um you know, they but in a, in an apartment, in your kitchen or in your bathroom, they they just have a completely different mm. reality. Mm. And they get inside your psyche in a very different kind of way, at least inside mine. A lot of your, your meditations in this in this book, these chapters, they deal with either love of insects or fear or at least um, misgivings about insects. The the most extreme uh, uh, on the negative side, I think, is probably this one called My Nightmares. Yes. I wondered if maybe you'd read uh, a choice passage from that. Okay. There's the nightmare of swarming and the nightmare of crawling. There's the nightmare of burrowing and the nightmare of being seen in the dark. There's the nightmare of turning the overhead light on, just as the carpet scatters. There's the nightmare of beings without reason and the nightmare of being unable to communicate. There's the nightmare of their being out to get us. There's the nightmare of knowing and the nightmare of non-recognition. There's the nightmare of not seeing the face. There's the nightmare of not having a face. There's the nightmare of too many limbs. There's the nightmare of all this plus invisibility. There's the nightmare of being submerged and the nightmare of being overrun. There's the nightmare of being invaded and the nightmare of being alone. There's the nightmare of numbers, big and small. There's the nightmare of metamorphosis and the nightmare of persistence. There's the nightmare of wetness and the nightmare of dryness. There's the nightmare of poison and the nightmare of paralysis. There's the nightmare of putting the shoe on and of taking the shoe off. There's the (laughs) slithering nightmare and the one that walks backward. There's the squirming nightmare and the squishing nightmare. There's the nightmare of the unwelcome surprise. (laughs) And many more. And many, yeah, there's a lot lot of nightmares. I don't really have those nightmares myself, but but it's pretty easy when you think about insects to come up with actually a very long list. And I think what struck me, you know, the more I thought about insects was the intensity of our feelings towards them, either positive or negative, but mostly negative. And also that we have this really... You know, deep ambivalence. And I guess when I say we, I'm thinking of people in the in the U.S. and Europe. But even you know, even the same insects can can really trouble us um, in different ways. So I think of there's this quote from Primo Levi that I came across where he he says something like, um, "Even the most beautiful butterfly, if you look at it closely, has a diabolical diabolical face." You wouldn't and want them to be ten feet long. You really wouldn't. No, you really wouldn't. No. Any of them blown up to our size would be quite frightening. Even the ones that are most beautiful, <laughs> even the pretty ones. Yeah, I mean, and and you know, you, even like ladybugs, which are very you know very attractive. Although I I know now we've got bad ladybugs and good ladybugs all of a sudden. Right? Mm. Um, but even the even ladybugs, really, if they were black, we wouldn't and you know didn't weren't in such pretty colours. We mm-hmm. wouldn't be so. Friends or people, mm. sure. Now you said we're, we're ambivalent here in the Western world, uh, whereas I would have said we're we're, we're more negative. I know people who just mm-hmm. think of them as all pretty gross and would yeah. happily wipe most of them out, yeah. with a few exceptions like the butterflies. Yeah. But the Eastern world, the, you visited, you spent time in both China and Japan. Mm-hmm. Very different attitude in some cases. Yeah, very different in some cases. I mean, particularly in Japan, I think um, I did a I did some research for a few weeks in in Japan talking to people who raised and um, raised and kept rhinoceros beetles and stag beetles. But in the last 10 or 15 years or so, there's been a real craze in Japan. A beetle boom. A beetle, a beetle boom, yeah, <laughs> of keeping and raising beetles. And, but it's, it's a great thing. So there are, there are pet stores which are just, just for beetles. And import controls on the really spectacular um, 
species were lifted in in 1999. I think something like 140 species. Or I'm not quite sure of the number right now, but it's in the book anyway. Um, were allowed allowed into the country, and these are the most really the most spectacular ones from Southeast Asia, the big rhinoceros beetles and big stag beetles. And um, some of these fetch an awful lot of money, and kids raise them, um, and they're very you know it's quite they're quite complicated, but there's a very you know there's, there's a whole pet store thing going on, so you can buy all the different. You went to the, the biggest uh, insect emporium in in Tokyo, Mushi Sha. Yeah, it's a great store. Mushi is beetle. Store. Yeah. More or less? <laughs> more or less. It's sort of insects, more or less. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And a big store full of insect pets. It's not a huge store, but it's a it's a big store, and it's one of many, mm. many stores. This is a really, really popular popular hobby. And, um, and it's also one of those things which provides an opportunity for fathers and sons to bond as well around, around it. And there's a popular movie slash... Um, Trading card franchise called Mushi King. Mushi King, which is a, a Sega video game a, involving been, beetles. Yeah, um, involving um, warring beetles. Mm. And it's really, warring really. But I don't know if it's still popular, but I, I think it probably is. But but at its height, it was it was the biggest thing since Pokemon. Mm. But you know, surprisingly enough, it didn't travel very far outside outside East Asia and Southeast Asia. And, and there are um, insect boys. Yeah. What's an insect boy? Well, that was my term for it, but really, um, well, actually, no, that was my translation of the of the Japanese concho shonen. Really, somebody who grows up loving insects and collecting insects, and people who, people who are encouraged in school. I mean, particularly boys, but not just boys, are encouraged in school to pay attention to insects. There's summer summer collecting assignments that are you know very very popular, and a lot of kids, you know. Um, really get into collecting insects. At one point you said that uh, you could even buy live um, beetles uh, in a vending machine? Yeah, not when, <laughs> I, not, not when I was in Japan, but, but I think that there had been that period that had existed. And now, you know, you find them in department stores, but they're sort of a bit sad in department stores. Mm. You know, it's, mm. um, they do better in pet, in pet stores. You had a, one of a number of people you talked to in Japan, uh, Professor Okumoto. Mm-hmm. He's an entomologist? No, he's a professor of literature. Literature? Um, an insect collector, and he's also the founder of the um, of this new museum in, in Tokyo, which is dedicated to Jean-Henri Fabre, who's somebody else that I write about in the yeah, book. Yeah, we'll talk about him. Okay. <laughs> uh, French naturalist. Exactly. But this professor said to you, in fact, you, you were inquiring as to the relationship to insects in Japan, and he actually sat down and drew a little diagram for mm. you of the mm-hmm. ideal life, mm-hmm. the ideal life in Japan. Well, but, this is, you know, this is, this is, only certain people's idea of an ideal life, I think. Nonetheless, it, yeah. it was a little sketch uh, or, 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 or a set of words um, associated with every stage of life from early childhood yeah. to adulthood mm-hmm. and um, objects and activities that made for the perfect life. And in the, yeah. in the childhood stage, those objects and activities included um, kuwagata and mm-hmm. kabutomushi. These are the um, stag beetles and um, rhinoceros beetles. Those are two, two essential elements of a good child's you know, life. Because they develop, because through that, you develop this affinity with nature, the patience, sympathy, sympathy for other beings, um, and close relationships. And the same way that we think about people developing close relationships with with cats and dogs. Mm. And you know, these are these are large these are large animals. You know, they're several inches across. They have, you know, they have character and personality. When you look at them, they you know, when you get familiar with them, they move in very. Do people ways. name them? When they have them as pets? That's a good question. I don't think so. Oh. No. And 
people don't seem to really grieve over them, particularly when they die. But I, I'm sure this is very individual. Mm. You know, that could just be people that I talk to. Um, and, you know, I don't know for sure that people don't name them. I don't know. Mm. I can imagine that they do. What do you make of this, though, this, rela- this seemingly very deep relationship the Japanese have to, to insects, to, mm-hmm. to bugs that we either ignore or are, you know, often repulsed by? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a particular set of insects. It's just a, a broader set than the ones that we're accustomed to, I think. Uh-huh. You know, it's fireflies, fireflies, butterflies, dragonflies, these beetles, um, crickets and cicadas. And there's a, long, there's a long literary tradition and painting tradition of representing them and of associating them with certain positive, with positive emotions and positive, positive feelings. So that people are very, um, people I talk to anyway, are very familiar with with these insects from an early age, that's one part of it, and and in posi- in positive ways. Then there are the you know the, the the school activities and the sort of attention that's given given to insects in school, and then I suppose since the since the fifties anyway, they've started to figure in more or less positive ways in manga and anime and popular culture in general. So there are I mean beetles and butterflies and just the idea of metamorphosis figures a lot in in um, popular culture. Yeah, speaking of manga, Japanese comic books. There, you you discovered one that's devoted to a character based on this French 19th century yeah, naturalist the 20th century, who yeah. specialized in insects, Jean-Henri Fabre, mm-hmm. who well, is virtually forgotten in the Western world and yeah. and has his own comic book in Japan. He's so well-known, plus <laughs> a museum. He's very, very well-known. I, I imagine, I mean, maybe I'm wrong about this, but any, any Japanese person I've ever met knows he's Fabre a, very well. You say he's a household name. Yes, he's a household a name. A 19th century insect expert. Well, it's because his writing is really, really compelling. He writes these very, very, you know, appealing stories about about insects and the insects that he lives with. It's partly because of that. It's partly because he's a sort of, I think, a sort of idiosyncratic kind of rebellious figure. I'm not sure I understand exactly what it is, but I understand why he's forgotten in why he's forgotten in Europe and North America anyway, which is that he he was really at war with Darwin, and he saw himself as... Uh, actually, you know, Darwin wasn't at war with him. He, Darwin wasn't particularly interested in him. <laughs> sure. There's one letter which goes back and forth between them. But he wrote these, he wrote these, popular, these popular books which were wildly successful in France. And went to, what sort of stories did he tell about insects? Yeah, the stories are things like um, how, they would, how they would make a nest. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're very personalized. So, and the animals are... are very strongly anthropomorphized. And you get this sense reading them, and, and this is what's actually so appealing reading them, and it's what's appealing, and then here comes the problem, right? But what's appealing about them is that you get this tremendous sense of the ingenuity and the individuality of the insect. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's an older form of, of biology. I mean, it's one that it's, it was is, yeah. way out of fashion even by the 19th century, or going out of fashion. Yeah, although I think that the study of animal behavior persists. I mean, I think he's an early, he's a forerunner of... Other people that I write about in here, but people like Conrad Lawrence and Carl von Frisch, who then write in a much more... They're still sort of like the heirs of natural history and um, much earlier much earlier kind of science, but they're also... They've really got at least one foot in, in modern science. The problem for Faber, well, from my point of view, and I think it's also why he's largely forgotten, except in Japan, is this, this relationship that he had with Darwin, or, or let's say the relationship he had with natural selection. I mean, he was really a creationist. And so he celebrated the wonder of nature, um, which is part of what's so appealing about reading his books, this, this sense of awe. Um, but then each time, almost every chapter that he writes, ends with a demonstration 
of, well, this looks like ingenuity. It looks like problem solving, but actually it's not. Um, this, is, this is instinct in its most primitive form. And this just shows us that right from the beginning, from the creation, these, these, in, these insects were, you know, they were created to behave like this, and this is the way that they behave. All this complex behavior hmm. was pre-programmed so, right from the so beginning. So you think the problem wasn't the storytelling per se, it was that he had the wrong story. I think that, so, yeah. that it was divine, you know, guidance that these these creatures were demonstrating. If he had only said this is the result of natural selection, he could have gone on telling these stories. You think? Well, I think you'd have written different stories if you'd mm-hmm. written if you'd written stories which had emphasized, which had been, let's say, had been more open. Then I think um, scientists would have would have been more willing to embrace the level of the level, of, you know, this very very impressive level of observation which he which he mm-hmm. has. And I want to remind listeners that this is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and we'll have more of my conversation with Hugh Raffles in just a moment. But first, some of that insect music I promised in my introduction to the show. This is actually music by humans about insects. The vocalist Mira and the band Spectratone International have created an entire album of insect songs called Share This Place. And get this, it was inspired by none other than Jean-Henri Fabre himself, We're going to hear an excerpt from Love Song of the Fly. And now back to today's conversation with Hugh Raffles. In this book, you're, you're in a very interesting position. You're not coming at this like you're a natural scientist. You're coming at this like those relativistic, you know, cultural anthropologists mm-hmm. who look at everything as a kind of, a kind of construct, uh-huh. you know? And well, so, to some extent. Yeah? Yeah. Well, I mean, you seem to be very even-handed when it comes to, to, to um, writing about and thinking about the stories told by science and the stories told by non-scientists. Yeah. Yeah, and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Where, where do you fall in this spectrum? I, I, you know, this is going to be a. Um, I don't know if this is a very satisfying answer, <laughs> <laughs> but I'll try it out anyway. Um, I think there are multiple ways of knowing. I'm not a. I'm not a. I'm not a didactic person. I don't think. Um, and what I like to do is raise questions and raise possibilities. Mm-hmm. So I think there are certain things that science has been very successful at explaining, um, particularly explaining mechanisms. And why why certain things exist? I think science is a very very or biological sciences have been very very effective at that, and that can be extremely useful knowledge. It can be it can be knowledge that um, you know that allows us to act in the world in some very in some very positive ways. Um, you know, it can cure disease. It can there's all kinds of things that you can do because of it. But the but that's that's one level of explanation, and it doesn't necessarily. There's an awful lot of things that that can't explain. I think most scientists would, would agree with that. I don't think it's a particularly contentious, contentious statement. So an example, for instance, might be that um, we know that reproduction is, is, necessary to, um, is necessary to life, 
we know that one of the things that animals have to do is they have to reproduce and that they and they have to, they have to eat but that doesn't mean that all behavior can be explained by the need to eat and the need to reproduce or even if that is you know something that's going on that you know that such and such a relationship leads to reproduction it doesn't explain all of the relationship and we we only have to think about our own sex lives for instance to to know that you know yes you know we have sex and therefore the 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 human race continues but that's not really a very satisfactory explanation of sex at this point. And, and, you know, there's an awful lot else which is going on. These are very complicated relationships which involve a lot of, you know, pleasure, for instance, but in very complicated ways. It's not even enough to say pleasure and desire. That doesn't really explain anything either. You know, these things are very deep and complicated. And I feel the same. There's, I have no reason to think that it's not just as complicated, maybe in very different ways I don't understand, for other animals. So you seem to have some affection for this other form of observation, this other form of study directed at insects, which is not working toward a final theory of everything, be it natural selection or something Mm -hmm. else, but is really interested in, in many cases, appreciation, or maybe even empathy. And it reminds me of a, a quote in here from Professor Okumoto, who, who, we, <laughs> Again, uh, yeah. Yeah, who we talked about just a moment ago, and he's, he's talking about the fact that he really likes Jean-Henri Fabre, this um, out-of-the-mainstream mm-hmm. naturalist who, who uh, was really more of a creationist than a, than a, than a Darwinist. Um, he identifies with him because he says, um, insect collectors are anarchists. And then you go on to say, they see the world from the place of the insect from inside the life of the animal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know... I would hazard to say that you also, in doing this book, are as every bit as interested in seeing the world from the perspective of, if that's not utterly impossible. It is utterly impossible. It is utterly impossible, but but, but, but but I can still try. Yeah, and I, I, (laughs) I like the impulse to do that. Yeah. And to think in terms of, you know, sympathy. I think sympathy might be a better word than empathy because empathy is really impossible with mm-hmm. creatures are so, mm-hmm. who are so different. It might actually be mm-hmm. with people as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but sympathy implies that you recognize that there's, there's a real difference there, um, but that you somehow... You know, this isn't really my idea. This, this comes from um, something that um, the philosopher Ian Hacking wrote. He talked about um, sympathy as a sort of like a form of resonance, you know, in the same way that violin strings resonate, that there's a way that, you know... Um, beings that are very different can somehow be in tune with each other, something like that. Um, I don't know if that's possible possible with insects. Hmm. I think it's What's the closest you've gotten, do you think? I mean, you spent, well, what, years thinking yeah. hard and writing about insects. Yeah. I suppose, you know, I'm going to sound like a total flake here, aren't I? But sometimes I, th- sometimes I think a, an insect will respond to you. Um, certainly with these, big, with these big beetles, there's no question that they do. And not just in a sort of like mechanical way um i do think that there are there are certain kinds of communication that are possible just as there are with with dogs and cats even though they're much more habituated to people well in in uh, shanghai where you went this book involved traveling the world yeah, uh does. learning about and um reporting on various human insect relationships and one place was shanghai and uh where they have and i didn't know this where cricket fighting is is a huge sport in China, mm-hmm. and Shanghai might be the capital of it all, I don't know. Well, it's really down the whole um, eastern side of China. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and you saw people training crickets. Mm-hmm. You saw a guy 
command a, a cricket yeah, to go yeah. left, go right, etc. Mm-hmm. And the yeah. cricket did? The cricket did. I mean, it was a mixture of verbal commands. And I'm not sure the cricket really understood the words, but the cricket responds actually pretty much exactly what it asked to what the, um, the trainer asked him to do. But, you know, these are people who've worked with crickets for 30, 40 years. Mm-hmm. So they have, they really, I think they really understand them very, very well. Mm. Well, you penetrated this 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 sort of underworld of, of cricket fighting. It's not illegal, but there's some gambling. Gambling is illegal. The gam- yeah, it, it actually is illegal, and people. The gambling is the cricket fighting is not. Cricket fighting itself isn't yeah. isn't no, but because gambling is illegal, then people who are operating casinos in which crickets fight are, are taking quite a significant risk. Are know? they? Yeah. Well, you you did your you know you did a great undercover job. You went in there. Well, you, you met, know, people. Are, I thought it was pretty remarkable that people are willing to. You know, open their open their circle to let people they don't know very well in. But you know, this happens because it's through people who know people who know people. Is you know how you're able to do something like that. Well, you gained an entree into the world of, of cricket fighting, and in one case, at least, uh, got to see some cricket gambling as well. Mm-hmm. You have um, an audio clip from a video you took in Shanghai uh, of, I guess, some of the circumstances surrounding cricket fighting. We're going to listen to that, and then you can tell us what we're what we're hearing. Okay. okay. So, so what's going on there? Well, this is some recording that I made at the museum in um, Chibao. You know, this guy's getting ready for a cricket festival that happens every every fall. And they are um, they're actually, what they're doing is they're setting up the closed-circuit TV for people when they're expecting a lot of people, and so people so people are going to be able to see... The, you know, these are very... Crickets are very small in, the, in yeah. this little arena, and so the closed-circuit TV will help people see them much I better. I was wondering projected. that. How do you yeah. even watch a cricket fight <laughs> if, you're, if you're not in the front row? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> but you put it on closed-circuit TV, that makes well, sense. Well, you do for these kinds of fights, but I think in, in um, other circumstances, you know, they're much more low-tech. So yeah. they've set up a clo- they've set up closed-circuit TV, and they're mm-hmm. going to project it to people who are, you know, not able to, to get into the room. They're also fighting a couple of crickets. They have they have crickets in this in this plastic arena, which is the standard way that you'd fight crickets. And the crickets are fighting, and you can hear the crickets singing when they when they break after they fought. The one that won that encounter starts singing. Um, the other one sort of turns around and looks a little <laughs> sort of a, got a bit of a hang song expression. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, crickets are kind of you know crickets are kind of macho, so you you know when they've won. So this isn't a battle yeah. to the death. They both most, most cases it's not. Sometimes though, a cricket can lose a leg or a couple of legs. But um, generally, that's not a battle to the death, no. And, that, does, that does happen. And not only didn't I know about this at all as a sport, but I would never have guessed that it was as big as it is. It's really big in China, yeah? Really, or really big. And China? it has been for 900, well, at least 900 years, which is when the first cricket manual was, was written. And cricket collecting and, and trading is a very, very developed economy. And you have gambling at different levels. So you have real high-rolling gambling. You know, from people who fly in from Singapore and from all over, and will bat really. You know, yeah. How much? What are the stakes in some of these matches? Well, in 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 those, I've I've never been to to one of those matches, and you know, security at those is very tight. But you know, people will bet. You know, like a basic bet will be something from what I hear anyway, something like ten thousand yuan, which is now something like what is that, like two thousand dollars. But that would just okay. be a basic. That would just be a basic stake, and you can you know like. Up the ante, I guess. As you oh, I see. So thousands and thousands of dollars. Thousands on on one fight, and there'll be many fights over the course mm-hmm. of an evening. Mm-hmm. 
So, I mean, obviously, it's an acquired taste, and, and I haven't acquired it yet. I can't imagine two crickets, like, biting each other. very, being very exciting It to is watch. exciting. Very exciting to watch. <laughs> <laughs> it's very compelling. Is it really? And, yeah, but it's also supported by this this amazing, amazingly sophisticated knowledge that people have of crickets. I mean, they know people who train crickets really devote large parts of their lives to judging crickets, training them, um, raising them. And they know they can tell, they can tell the finest distinctions between different crickets. They know the sort of regimens, food regimens to put them on. They know how to cure them of sicknesses, all kinds of things. And you know, champion crickets are extremely valuable, and trainers can do very well out of them. If you look so, up uh, cricket fighting on Wikipedia, you yes, will see it, a photograph. At yeah. least last time I checked, of a cricket coffin for a very famous. Oh, really? Fighting cricket. I yes. haven't seen that. Okay, Very well, there nice you go. coffin. There you go, yeah. And I think <laughs> Who didn't die in battle, by the way. <laughs> retired and lived out his years. <laughs> but in, on, I think you can, on YouTube you can find um, film of cricket. Yes, you can. Yeah. Yes, you can. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's this great, very Chinese body of wisdom around the traditions, going way, way back. You, you yeah, actually yeah. read the Book of Crickets from the 13th century? Well, I don't read Chinese, but I worked with somebody who did. Okay. And, and we, you know, we... She helped me translate passages. So, so you can tell me, undoubtedly, from memory, what the five virtues and the three reversals are? Oh, God, no, but you can find them <laughs> in my book. <laughs> well, well, I was particularly um, uh, delighted with the uh, three reversals. Um, and you can explain what these are. Maybe I can just read them from your book. Well, the three reversals are really interesting to me, particularly because the, the, five, the five virtues are ways in which crickets are similar to, similar to humans. But as I say, you know, unlike people in... You know, people we all know and their pets. There's no confusion about about these animals that people are very close to being being human in any way. So, so there are also the three reversals, which are ways in which crickets are distinctly not like people. And, and you haven't memorized those yet. No, I don't have a great. You don't carry that around with you. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to read them for 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 us. Um, skip the five virtues. Go right to the three reversals here, which I think are at the end of the chapter. Yeah, they are. Yeah, they're sort of the punchline. Yeah. So, so here they are. Um, the, the, again, the three reversals, ways in which um, crickets are not like human beings. A defeated cricket will not protest the outcome of a fight. He will simply leave the arena without bluster or complaint. And you know, that is absolutely true. And, and this is a way in which crickets are better than human beings. I mean, not just yeah. different. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> And the second reversal. The point being that we can all learn from crickets. Exactly. A cricket requires sex before a fight and performs better for the stimulation it provides rather than having an enervating effect on athletic performance, as according to this reversal, it does on men. (laughs) Pre-game sex among crickets promotes physical prowess, mental focus, and fighting spirit. Third reversal. Crickets have sex with the female on the male's back a position functionally impossible for people, and you add in, in your very um, exacting fashion without complicated equipment. In other words, what the female mounting the male on his back. Yeah, and I think that is, so far as I can tell, this is functionally impossible for humans. Okay, well, we can, we can leave any speculation out <laughs> and just go to... But, you know, anything's possible. People are really, really creative, <laughs> so I don't want to push that point. <laughs> well, um what did you take from this? Uh, again, your guy went in with a lot of questions. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the Chinese rather, were rather amused at all the questions you asked. They wrote newspaper articles about <laughs> you and everything. Uh, well, I got, you know, I got sort of enrolled in somebody else's, somebody else's cricket project there, yeah. What did you, yeah. What did you take from this, this whole investigation of cricket culture in China, though? Apart from just sort of falling completely in love with it, apart from that. Um, oh, well, maybe that's enough. 
Yeah, that was that was a big part of it. The other though was that I mean, I learned a lot of stuff. One of them was that I think before I got to know people and been to a fight, I would have thought in the same way that I think from the outside I feel about cockfighting and dogfighting that this is exploitative and abusive. Right. Yeah. Cruel. Um and cruel. But that having spent time with people um and been to fights I was much less certain about that. Or at least I felt because the level of knowledge about the crickets and the the kind of um world that is created around them and because of them is so it's so elaborate and so so generous in some ways. I call this chapter generosity. Um generous That's right. You called the chapter the title is generosity. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's generous towards the crickets, um, but it's also just it just creates such an enormous amount of life. And to think that you know, one of the things that I that that I that the book turned into was was a whole series of examples, I suppose, or stories about how these really interesting, or to me anyway, really interesting worlds get created because of insects mm-hmm. and, ar- and around insects. Mm-hmm. Very, very diverse worlds. But the, the, the world of fighting crickets was perhaps the most elaborate and most, mm. most interesting of all to me. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, uh, you know, you're hitting on a quote I wanted to read. Um, you say that crickets are not merely the opportunity for culture, but its co-authors. Yeah. In this case, yeah. um, do they have a lot of say in it? You think? I mean, is it fair to say that they're they're co-authors? Well, in the sense that without them, it wouldn't exist. Mm-hmm. And we tend to think of them as being completely passive in it, yeah. which is what you're asking. Um, but the behavior of an individual cricket determines you know these these really really significant outcomes, um, and they can make or break the people who are betting on them in certain circumstances. Mm. Um, mm. People devote their lives to them. Um, so and yeah, sometimes waste their lives on them. I mean, maybe waste their lives. Well, certainly, and they can, you know, and the gambling can. Yeah, can that's dis- what I, I was referring yeah, to. It yeah, can destroy families. Yeah, wow. Um, can destroy people. Wow. You know, gambling is. You know, gambling is is a complicated thing. Very different, different from cricket in uh, England, where you come from. Actually, much more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Well, speaking of interesting, and um, and uh, you were, we were talking about cricket sex a moment ago, mm-hmm. and I want to stay on the subject of, of sex. It does come up in this book of yours, um, and you have a chapter called Sex. Mm-hmm. So let's start this part of our conversation with a little more audio. This is from a, a film clip that you provided me with. It's so easy to step on little pests with pumps on. With pumps, all of my weight is concentrated on the ball of my foot. And the worms smush so easily. These pumps belong to my mother. I decided to use them because she didn't want me to be in a foot fetish film. <laughs> okay, Hugh, so tell us about this film. It's called Smush. Yeah. This is a um it's a crush movie. But this particular You say one, that like we should all know what that is? No, I'm gonna explain. <laughs> I actually didn't know what it was either before I started this this project, um, but uh, you know, in my, I was very interested in in as you can as you know in intense relationships between people and insects, mm-hmm. um, and so I you know and I look quite broadly for those um, because I wanted to know what were the possibilities I suppose, um, and I was actually mostly looking for positive possibilities. I was interested in places where where insects are really valued, and. Somebody, somebody um, 
told me about um, about crush freaks, which is and I didn't know about them before. But crush freaks, yeah, that's which is what people call themselves or um, crush fetish, and that's really, I mean, in the simplest terms, it's you know, it's a, it's a sexual fetish of and guys get off watching women crush things. So it's similar. It's similar. Crush. Living things. Well, like not necessarily, but it can be living things. It, it can be insects or bugs of some kind. Yes, it can. And, be. and you're saying the guys well, get off on watching women stomp on these things. Yeah, crush them with their feet. With their feet. These yes. are called crush freaks. What we were just hearing is a very famous example of a. Yeah, this is from a movie, film. and it's actually it's actually um, the animals in the movie are worms. Worms. Okay, it's yeah, not well, insects. Uh, these, are, these are these are earthworms. <laughs> technically, not insects. Definitely not. Um, so, yeah, this is a this is a um, complicated thing to talk about. Well, well, first, let me say that when when I started reading the chapter, I wondered if you were pulling my leg. Oh, really? But you you aren't at all. This is for real. No, not at all. And and there is a there's a significant subculture of men who fantasize about giant women smashing them like bugs. Because the men are, yeah. what's exciting to the men is the idea that they're being crushed. Yeah, that's how people describe it. I, I don't feel I don't feel qualified to really say exactly what's going on. Yeah. in that. But yeah, people talk about it as being, you know, um, similar to, yeah, guys guys who like being trampled on by women, or who, you know, there's a whole there's a whole fetish genre of um, you know giantism. Giantism. Yeah, giantism. Yeah, which um, is you know, and there's there's actually kind of. Sort of mainstream movies that feature this as well, you know, like the what is it, the 60, attack 60 of the sixty-foot woman go, or whatever she was. Yeah, yeah, I mean this kind of thing, but but you know, except that it's not just a novelty thing. That that for some guys, it's a really, it's a really powerful um, sexual fantasy. Um, so you know, one one of the ways to think about it is, is being related to giantessism or, or or the men putting themselves in the same position that they would or the same relationship with with women as they would with, you know, fantasize about giantessism or fantasize about being tramp, trampled. Um, I'm not really. I actually wasn't that, you know, that concerned about what was the sort of the fetish mechanism. That mm. didn't really, in, and I and I really wasn't interested in in pathologizing um, the guys or making them out to be, you know, sick or something like this. Because there's plenty of other people doing that, right? Um, and that wasn't the part of it that okay. seemed interesting to me. Um, I was I was interested in what that relationship with with the insects was because it seemed like this very powerful identification. Different from any other one that I'd that I'd seen, and when I say identification, what I mean is that that you know men explain this to me as putting themselves in the position of the insect that was being crushed, you know, and in, in these videos, it's usually a woman saying, "I'm going to smash you, you little bug. I'm yeah, going to crush yeah, you." There's a, there's a whole narrative that should go along with it. Yeah, and the narratives tend to be pretty routine, and, a pretty and, routine set of stories, and the men are identifying with the bugs being crushed, and that's a very exciting sensation for them. Yes, so you could say that's a very masochistic um, scenario that that they're setting up. Um, So, and, but also a, you know, very intense one, because it's not just about being trampled, it's about being, it's about being actually killed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So it's, it's sort of like the ultimate, the ultimate kind of trampling, and, and I guess some kind of like transference to the to the bug but I, I mean you know now I'm talking about this and like psychologizing people like I'm a therapist and, and I'm, but honestly I'm not interested in that so I was interested in, particularly in this you know in what what, this, what the relationship was with the with the insect but actually I started to think that really the insect in these um, in these movies and for these guys wasn't really that relevant as a being that it was it's, it's real value 
was that it was, you know, that was that it was worthless. Hmm. So, hmm. so in this scenario, it's it's it was that the insect could be crushed. That it was just, it was the most vilest thing you could imagine. Mm-hmm. And so people were putting themselves in that position, hmm. Hmm. and that was, you know. Well, let me ask you this. I mean, you didn't want to pathologize it. You being a good anthropologist, uh-huh. you're not one to judge phenomena that you see. Well, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to judge quite a lot of things. Are but you? I do, yeah, but I don't, I, I don't feel that I want to... I don't feel that I'm in a position to say that people are sick because they have different, different sexual preferences from... Well, so. as uh, you know, each of your essays likes to raise questions and likes to provoke thoughts that might not otherwise come. And... Um, Rather than taking the easy view that this is all gross and horrible, yeah. you did raise the question that, that, that was, I think, uh, in a way put to you by Jeff Valencia, is that his mm-hmm. name, who is a self-professed crush freak. And he was saying, he's an animal rights activist. Yeah, we're smashing bugs, but human beings do that all the time. They do it in much greater numbers than we, we're doing it here. And we kill anim- animals to eat them for our own pleasure. We do a lot of killing. And we those hunt. forms of... Yeah, we hunt. We do, we do kill for pleasure, and it's legal. Uh, choosing to have a cow killed for because I like steak rather than eating tofu, that's for pleasure, right? That's a discretionary mm-hmm. act. So these insects are being crushed in these crush videos for sexual pleasure. What's Why should that be illegal? It's an interesting question, but we'll have to leave it. Because <laughs> <laughs> I have more questions I want to ask you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's a, it wasn't a deliberately provocative chapter, actually, but, but it certainly has it come out that one. way, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I'd like to remind listeners that this is KUSP, Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Robert Polly, and the show is The 7th Avenue Project. Today I'm talking to the anthropologist Hugh Raffles, author of the new book Insectopedia. It's about the strange and varied ways that humans relate to insects. Well, we've, we've been sort of um, circling uh, a big question through this entire interview, where we've said things about wondering what it's like to be an insect or how much identification is possible between a human and an insect. Mm-hmm. And there's a chapter you have on, um, on vision. Yeah. Is it called vision? It is, yeah, V for vision. It, yeah, there, your, your chapter V for vision, um, which begins by talking about attempts to sort of simulate for people the kind of perception that, that insects must have looking through their compound eyes. And you get deeper into this question of what vision is and how we can talk about it in, in insects. And you talk about the, the work of a couple of biologists. Do you remember their names? Preet and Kral. Yeah, Frederick Preet and Carl Kral, who are describing pre- vision in praying mantises and how praying mantises decide what's edible and what's not, what a, what's a good meal and what's not. And some of the language they use in just trying to figure out the kind of reasoning, there you go, there you go. reasoning mm-hmm. that a praying mantis must go through, sounds almost anthropomorphic. Now, it, it raises a question that when we talk about animals, uh, do we talk about animals thinking or, or should we use some very mechanistic language in which, in which an algorithm is applied and and something is analyzed and something is done, but without an, without an agent actually thinking it through. Well, what these guys do that I think is interesting is they, they use an algorithm to, to describe praying mantis, um, praying mantis behavior. Yeah. And they, they set up this, this quite, um, quite detailed, quite complex algorithm of various, various um, criteria that the, um, or variables, let's say, that the praying mantis is taking into account before it makes a decision as to whether or not it's going to 
sees some prey that it sees that it that it sees sees that it sees. Um, <laughs> so you know the size of it, the shape of it, the way it's moving, where it is in its line of vision, all these kinds of things. Yeah. And then they say that essentially this is exactly the, exactly the same algorithm as humans use when they're making decisions. So rather than just being some sort of like reflex right. to jump out and see something that's, that's yeah. floating by, there's a, there's a series of calculations um, that are they consider abstract reasoning that the mantis is going is going through. So in some ways, it's not it's the opposite of anthropomorphism. It's it's sort of deanthropomorphizing humans. Yeah, yeah. Process, I right? guess that's true. Well, I I mean I put it badly the first time around, so let me try it again. That. What 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 interests me is the fact that just different habits of language in describing these things mm-hmm. make, seem to make all the difference. If yeah. I were to describe this in the passive voice and say that uh, various food sources are um, are analyzed to see if they match certain patterns uh, that uh, through conditioning have been established as tasty or toxic, you know, I can I can make this all sound like it's a, it's a robot doing this, no thought required, mm-hmm. or. I can make it sound like there's an intelligent agent doing this and that it is processing past experience, memories, making decisions and all of that. Yep. And I think most scientists would tend toward the the mechanistic language and that would be a rather important choice because mind isn't really supposed to that's a term we tend to reserve for higher animals, right? Getting up toward dogs and chimpanzees and certainly humans but not insects, right? No. Nope. What do you think? Well, you know, you've read my book, so, <laughs> so I, I am, um, I am open to possibilities, mm-hmm. and yes, I'm also very sensitive to the way that language is language is used to, um, let's say, to create the world, um, and I feel there are such an enormous number of unknowns in the way that we approach approach insects that I'm very, very wary of of drawing a line under any way of um any of, of just making any categorical categorical assumptions about them um there's this trope which which you get again and again um from biologists who who work with um particularly with bees where they'll and they you know they're trying to figure out you know bee cognition there's a lot of work on bee cognition and they set they set bees to tasks you know like flying through mazes and memorization tasks and this kind of thing most of the time, the bees can accomplish this with really no difficulty at all. And, and, and again and again, you get the same statement coming at the end of the end of the paper, which is, "Who knew that an insect with such a tiny such a tiny brain was capable of capable of such you know cognitive cognitive mm-hmm. tasks?" Mm-hmm. So there are there are a few things I think that come from that. One one is that um, you know the, that maybe if we had a higher sense of their capacities and were and were imagining greater potential, we would actually start to find more. And also, if we were setting setting tasks which weren't, you know, we tend to set animals tasks that that would that were they successful in accomplishing them, they would have the you know the capacities of a two year old human. If we really actually were able to think of them with with more sympathy, I suppose, um, and think of them as animals who had different interests, different different desires, you really you know. They have no particular interest in learning language, for instance. Why would they want to learn language? They can communicate perfectly well amongst themselves. Um, then, you know, then we might actually be able to to reimagine. It's it's, it's a problem of imagination, I think, in our parts in many cases. Mm. The the other point I'd like to make is that with insects, we we rarely think of them as animals. Um, we think of them as insects, and and in doing that, we we take them out of any any evolutionary continuity with ourselves. 
we don't think of them as being we don't think of themselves as partaking of the same genome of, as as us or having any kind of sort of cognitive continuity and that's part of the reason why we can also think of them as so easily as automatons and as mechanistic the animals that we call animals and think of you know without any any sort of hesitation um, that's because we we recognize some sort of some sort of affinity sort of psychic affinity or some sort of like there's some mental recognition that's going on well we've Barely scratched the surface of your book. We haven't had a chance to talk about your adventures in Niger, learning about locusts, or your very interesting chapter on um, on the Holocaust, where mm-hmm. you suggest that Nazi practices and language around extermination were actually sort of built on a new orientation toward disease and quarantine and, and mm-hmm. contagion yeah. Yeah. that had sort of preceded. And that, that's the really, death camps. Yeah, and that's and really not. I mean, that that's well doc, well documented. Well documented. Yeah. Well, there's a lot in this book we haven't talked about. But since our time is at an end, I just have one question for okay. you. Are you an insect person? <laughs> you know, I've become one. My attitudes to insects have changed a lot. But I'm I'm also a very urban person. And <laughs> what I think I've, what I, I think I'm a lot more tolerant of insects in my house. I'm, I'm trying to improve as a tolerant person and be be kinder to the insects I see. Mm. Well, you certainly make a good show of being tolerant in this book. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment. Thank you. Thank you, Hugh. <laughs> Thanks a lot. Hugh Raffles is a professor of anthropology at the New School for Social Research. His latest book is Insectopedia. And since we have a little time left in the show today. I wanted to play one more segment from my conversation with Hugh, where we discussed this audio piece from sound artist and acoustic ecologist David Dunn. It's made from recordings in the Pinyon Juniper Forest of New Mexico. So we're listening to a CD by David Dunn called The Sound of Light in Trees. And what you're hearing is the sound of life inside a pinyon pine. And the clicking are the sound of bark beetles. The little explosions that you can hear are what are called cavitation events from when the trees are under stress, little gas bubbles go off. And you're also hearing the the water sounds that you're hearing are the movement of the liquids inside the tree. So he, he's he's putting little microphones right up to the tree to catch all this actually inside and under under the bark. Yeah, and he he, he sort of um, Jimmy rigged him these things himself using. Um, using transducers out of Hallmark cards and little things. Yeah, each one was, I think, cost them less than $10. Yeah. So, so what we're hearing is an artistic composition, but it's based on what these beetles are doing inside yeah. of pinyon pines in New Mexico. Yeah. And what they're doing isn't good for the tree. Well, no. In, in um, 2001, 2002, there was a really severe drought in, in, the, in the southwest. And the... The trees, the pinion pines, could normally withstand a certain level of infestation from bark beetles, but because they were weakened by the drought, and at the same time, the, the you know, beetle populations increased and the trees' defenses were reduced, and so the, beetle, the trees were just simply overwhelmed. And there was a huge, die, huge die-off of pinion pines in the area. David was living in Santa Fe and was very, you know, like, like many people there, was very disturbed by what he was seeing and sort of the people's helplessness watching, watching the forest that they were used to just really you know, being um, destroyed. And he, so he developed this project where he started listening, listening to something like the interior life of the, life of the trees. 
I think you use the phrase, the sound of global warming, mm-hmm. in your essay. Yeah. Because these sounds of these beetles infesting these trees and eating these trees, this is affected by droughts and by global warming, which weakens these trees and makes them more susceptible to That's this. That's right, because it extends, it extend, you know, what's happening is that the, the, the um, weather patterns are changing. Mm. So droughts are getting longer, the rainfall is less. Yeah. Mm. And David Dunn's um, project isn't just to record and make nice compositions. Mm-hmm. He's actually interested in um, the ecology and the role that sounds play in, the, in, in this environment. Well, this, yeah, and, I, and this is very interesting, I think, because for, for the last probably 40 years, um, insect, studies of insect communication have been, apart from bees, have been dominated by chemical ecology. Um, people have really focused on chemical communication between insects, and you know they found really fantastic things. Right? So they, there's this conventional idea of the insects' world as, and maybe the trees' world as well, as being mediated by chemicals. Yes, that's really been the dominant paradigm in, in considering insect communication for the last, last, as I said, apart from with bees, for the last um, 40 years or so. And David's work is, or this particular piece of it is, is really important, I think, because. As a mu- because he's a musician, he you know he's been very interested in sound, and so he started to recognize um, the kinds of sound communications that are happening between these between these beetles, and he's he argues that they um, they hear what's happening inside a tree. So a tree gives off sound signals when it's under stress, and that's what those little these little gas explosions are. That these that these signal to the to the beetles which trees they might want to they might want to attack. The beetles, in turn, can communicate by sound to each other um, so that they know both which trees to go to, um, but also when there are too many beetles already on a tree, and that's going to be, you know, they don't want more to come because that can lead to, you know, there's not going to be enough nutrition for the, for the other beetles to eat, you know, if there's too many on the trees. So he's, he's started to create this, this picture of a, of a sound world that insects live in. Mm. And that does it for today's 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly here signing off until next week, Sunday at noon. In the meantime, you can visit us on the web at 7thAvenueProject.com.